Friends and family, welcome to Convergent Church. I don't know about you, but uh, I talked to some people on the way in. It sounds like for a lot of us, it's been a long week, maybe a hard week. And my heart just rejoices right now to sing with you all and to be with you all, to be among family. And just to remember, as, as, as Dan so clearly reminded us of that blessed hope that we have in Jesus. If you're joining us for the first time, or, or maybe you're just returning after a few weeks, we are walking through the book of Galatians in a series we're calling Freedom Through Faith. We're coming to the end of chapter four today, and so we're going to be continuing in that same vein. You know, for as long as I can remember, um, I've always just really loved a good story. When me and my wife um, were dating when we were younger, she would joke, and say how I would just kind of always have my face immersed in some book about some fanciful land or unique characters with harrowing tales. I mean, Doug Peterson's here, he can tell you. Um, you know, sometimes it would get so bad, I would just have my face in a book and I would block out like all conversation and all interaction around me and I would just fixate on the book that I was reading really to the detriment of a lot of the relationships around me and to the frustration of, of my future wife. But uh, when I became a Christian, I began to realize that many of my favorite stories had biblical roots to them. For instance, Shakespeare's Hamlet or Lord of the Flies, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, The Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, most of you probably know, and even modern examples like Harry Potter borrow from the biblical narrative to bring their stories close to home and really explain and, and try to get to the heart of the human condition. And today, as we walk through our text, we're going to see that Paul uses this same tactic, guided by the Holy Spirit, to help the Galatians see, um, taking from the Old Testament, how important it is to be justified through faith alone. And, and what he's trying to do is to help them to escape the, the persuasion of these Judaizers that we've been talking about, people who wanted them to turn from a gospel based on salvation uh, through faith in Jesus Christ to a gospel based on works. But before we get into that, uh, we really have to quickly uh, talk a little bit about the, the literature device of allegory. So we're going to have a quick lesson on allegory here. So we're going to be in Galatians uh, chapter 4. Verse 21, we're going to work all the way through 5.1 today, and we're really going to just work through the text today. But in verse 24 of our text, Paul uses the word allegory, or it's allegorio in the Greek. And this word is a compound of the word allos, which means other, and agorio, which means to speak in the place of. And the sense of this word means to speak other than one seems to speak. And it holds this idea of something being represented under the image of something else. In literature, an allegory is a literary device that uses symbolism and it uses metaphor to portray a bigger idea. You know, many of you may know uh, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. But in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, we see our main character, Pilgrim, who has this great weight upon his back, which symbolizes and represents his burden of guilt and, and sin before God. We watch him as he moves from this deep guilt over his sin in the city of destruction, which represents the world, to the swamp of despondency in which he almost drowns into the village of morality. The village of morality symbolizes uh, righteousness gained by law-keeping. Soon, Pilgrim finds himself at the wicked gate, which symbolizes repentance, and on that gate hang the words, knock, and it shall be opened unto thee. 
Finally, Pilgrim finds his salvation at the cross on Calvary Hill, and he battles the devil in the valley of humiliation. He faces temptations at the Vanity Fair, and and he succumbs to spiritual depression and imprisonment in Doubting Castle. Eventually, Pilgrim enters eternal life with Christ in the celestial city, which represents heaven, but only after first braving the dark river, which represents death. John Bunyan's story is full of symbolism, and it's an allegory of the Christian life from total sinful depravity unto that day when we are fully glorified and we live with Jesus. But maybe my favorite moment in the story, and I'll watch uh, sort of the, the theatrical version with my children, my favorite moment in the story is when Pilgrim passes through Interpreter's house. Now, Interpreter in the story represents the Holy Spirit, and at Pilgrim's, or at an interpreter's house, Pilgrim is given wisdom and understanding to know the truth of the Bible and how to apply it rightly. He finally sees scripture rightly as interpreter, the Holy Spirit reveals it to him. So as we walk through our text today, I really want to take care because God created the human mind with a great, just an immense, a tremendous imagination. An allegory can take our imagination off track if we let it. So what I'd like to do first is just anchor ourselves in the historical context of this text for today so that we don't fixate on anything that the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to fixate on. So we're going to sort of walk through Interpreter's House together this morning. So let's start in verse 21, Galatians 4 verse 21. So we're looking at the historical background here and Paul says this, tell me, You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So as an introduction to his allegory, Paul suggests that these these law-keeping Jews, these Judaizers at Galatia, take a real close look at the law that they believe brings salvation. And the use of the word law there, it doesn't necessarily refer to the Ten Commandments so much as it refers to the first five books of the Bible, which we might call the Law of Moses, we might call the Pentateuch. But Paul is saying, surely, surely, if you insist on trusting the law for life and living under its demands, you will be willing to listen to what the law says to you, right? If you believe it gives life, you'll be willing to listen. And Paul is really taking a play out of Jesus's playbook. It was very common in, in, the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, to watch the master Jesus when he was working with the scribes and the Pharisees to, to, to just really ask them questions like, you know, haven't you heard? Surely you know. He would say things like, you're a teacher, but you don't understand what the law says, do you? Paul is employing this same tactic as he looks back to the Old Testament. He looks back to the story of Abraham, the the progenitor, the first of the Jewish people, the Hebrews. And he says this in verse 22 and 23. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. This is significant for this moment in the church of Galatia. You know, most Jews believe they found acceptance before God, not only through obedience to God's law, but also because of the fact that they were blood descendants of Abraham, the first Jew, the first Hebrew. 
And it's common in the Gospels to see Jesus refute the notion that being a child of Abraham actually brought you peace with God. You know, in John 8, there's a group of unbelieving Jews that, that say to Jesus, they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, you know, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. They reply to Jesus, they say, we have one father, even God. And Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. Jesus goes on to tell them, your father is the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Jesus was very clear that not only does being a child of Abraham not bring anyone peace with God, but it also doesn't stop you from being a child of the devil. It doesn't really count for anything. And Paul wants to highlight this truth in two ways. First, he goes about this by reminding the Galatian believers that Abraham didn't have one son, but two sons. And the distinctions between these two children really couldn't be any more clear. The first son was, was Ishmael, the son of Hagar. He was the son of an Egyptian slave woman. The other son was Isaac. Isaac was the son of Sarah, and he was the son of a free woman. And throughout Paul's allegory today, you'll see that, that Paul's focus is never on the fact that these two children have the same father, but that these two children are born of two different mothers. One mother births children to a life of destructive slavery, a life of law-keeping. The other births offspring destined for freedom, and for eternal life in Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that Paul tells the Galatians in the story. The second thing he does is he notes that the son of the slave woman is born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman is born according to the promise. So a little bit of historical context in the history here. A long time after Abraham was promised a son by God, anywhere between maybe 10 or 15 years, his wife, Sarah, had not yet conceived a child. They had been waiting for this promise. Abraham was about 86, and his wife, Sarah, was about 76, and Abraham expresses his fear to God. He comes to God, and he says, God, why haven't you given me a son yet? I'm afraid that, that Eleazar, who was his, basically, uh, his servant, his chief servant, that he, he was afraid that this man, who was not a blood child of his, would become an heir to his estate and that he would inherit the promises that God gave him. But God reaffirms his original promise to Abraham. He promises him again that a future son is going to be born and it's going to be of Abraham's blood and it's going to be an heir. Several more years go on and still his wife Sarah has not yet conceived a child. So Sarah, in, in an effort to make matters into her own hands. She comes to Abraham and she persuades Abraham to have a child with her slave, Hagar. And now this is Ishmael. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. He was not born according to the flesh because he was from Abraham's body or Sarah's body. Of course, both of these children were from their bodies. But he was born according to the flesh because of the scheme that Abraham and Sarah used to sort of bring about God's promise in, in an inadvertent way. 
The scheme was done for purely selfish reasons. It was done with no regard for faith in God's promises or motivation for, for God's glory. And it was fulfilled by purely human means. They came up with a plan, they executed it, it was within their power to do, and they did it selfishly. This is one child, Abraham's first child, Ishmael. And Paul contrasts the birth of Ishmael with the birth of his second son, Isaac, who was born of a free woman. And Isaac was brought to life according to God's powerful promise. Isaac's birth was not according to the flesh. It was not by human means. It was a supernatural birth. Quite literally, the Holy Spirit opened Abraham's wife's womb, his wife Sarah, a once barren womb that was completely unable to conceive children, even though Abraham and Sarah were well past childbearing age, and Sarah had never to that point conceived a child at all. And by the time that Isaac was born, Sarah was 90 years old, and Abraham was 100 years old. A verse that's very commonly tied to this story is, is there anything impossible for God? This child was a child of faith. He was a child of promise. He was not a child of the flesh. And Paul is saying that these two births represent two ideas about how God goes about solving the human condition. How does God solve the issue of sin? How does he solve the issue of the curse that we are all under, which separates us from his loving presence? One son, Ishmael, represents the way of the flesh, works of the law, religious self-effort, he, he represents righteousness gained through obedience to God's law. But Isaac represents something different. He represents trust in God's promise. Isaac, the son of faith, represents justification through faith in God's power, in, in God's generous action. He represents righteousness that's gained as a gift, not righteousness that is worked for by God's people while Ishmael is a, is a symbol of a natural birth and a symbol of the death into which all men are condemned, Isaac is a symbol of a spiritual rebirth in which men find life and freedom through faith. Paul moves on to say this in verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband." Paul turns from the historical context of the story into the divine interpretation of the story. So guided by the Holy Spirit to look at this Old Testament story, Paul tells his readers like, hey, I'm speaking allegorically. 
I'm using these things as symbols. But in Paul's speaking, there's nothing fictional or indirect about Paul's speech. Paul is using a historically biblical story to illustrate an ongoing biblical truth, a truth that is true for us as the church even today. That is that, yes, God has ordained two covenants. And and for those of you who may not know what a covenant is, a covenant is simply a binding promise between two or more persons. It's, It's a contract, right? It says, I will do something if you do something. One covenant is old. One covenant is new. Ishmael and Hagar, those who are slaves to the law, represent the old covenant, which was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Many of you know the story of the Ten Commandments and the tablets. There, God reveals his his fearsome an awesome nature in fire and, and in wind and in tempest and in lightning and in the thunder and in storm. And he displays his immense holiness, which could not be approached. He tells them, don't even touch the mountain that I'm standing on. That's how holy I am. You cannot approach me in a normal way. This covenant, this binding agreement that God gave to Moses and the Israelites, it required absolute full, 100% obedience to God's commands in order to live at peace with him. And what the covenant ultimately did, because no human being was ever able to keep this covenant fully. God was faithful to his commands on his side, but everyone who attempted to keep the covenant ultimately failed. What it did is instead of producing those who were righteous and who could approach God, It produced spiritual slaves who could ultimately never live up to the demands and thus could never gain their freedom from their failures through their own self-effort. Paul says that this covenant, the old covenant, it corresponds to Mount Sinai and to the Jerusalem of his day and even the Jerusalem of ours, the, the actual city of Jerusalem. Mount Sinai and Jerusalem, they're both symbols of Judaism, and I want to be clear, these are allegorical distinctions again. They're symbols of Judaism. Paul is is making an allegory here, and I just want to be clear that a common theme throughout the book of Galatians is that all people are born children of Hagar. All people are born into a spiritual slavery. All people because we all belong to God, are born under God's commands and demands. And ultimately, all people cannot live up to that. Historically, racially, geographically, socially, it makes no difference. All people in all times are naturally born under the curse of the old covenant, unable to keep its commands. And thus, every person is born separated from God in a fundamental way. And nowhere was this more prominent than in the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was the place where Jesus was accused. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was blasphemed. He was tortured. He was crucified and ultimately killed in this place. And Paul says that the unbelieving Jews in the city of Jerusalem are still enslaved. They believe they're free because they keep God's law, 
but ultimately they are enslaved. Paul says they're enslaved with their mother, Hagar, even to this day. Because to this day, they did not repent. They did not pursue a better way. And just as at Mount Sinai, when God first gave the law, they cannot approach him in freedom. Man, that's a sad story. But on the contrary, Paul says that Isaac and Sarah, the free woman and her child, they represent the new covenant, not the old. They represent a new promise, a new promise of grace through faith in the works of Jesus, a better covenant, a better agreement, one consummated upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ Jesus, who is the only one who could ever keep the totality of God's law. Jesus, who is the only one who was not born, separated from God, but in communion with God. Jesus, who is the only one who was ever born holy, who from the very moment of his birth to his very last breath kept the totality of God's law, never sinning, even for a millisecond, in thought, word, or deed. Paul says, this covenant does not represent the Jerusalem of this earth. It represents the Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem of heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. He says, this Jerusalem, while the earthly Jerusalem is the mother of the Jews and of those who are bound to slavish work to gain righteousness, he says that this covenant is our mother, and she is the Jerusalem from above. She is the mother of Christians, and that God is our true father. He says that those who are reborn of this Jerusalem, of the heavenly Jerusalem, they are free from the curse of the law. He says that they are free from sinful bondage. He says that they are no longer captive to the flesh. And most importantly, those who trust in this covenant are free to do something that no one before was ever able to do under the confines of the old covenant. Those who trust in the new covenant are free to please God. They are free to please God. You see, before they were reborn, their will was bound to sin. Their will was bound to self-interest, just as Hagar's was and her children's is. Ultimately, they were free, but they were free to sin. That was all they could do. And they could do whatever they want to, but it would always result in sin. But now that they have been reborn by faith in Jesus Christ, they have been given hearts open to delight in God. They've been given hearts that are soft, that yields to God's desires for them. Hearts that see Jesus as Lord and Master and God as Father, they are finally able to do what is right because they're able to please God from the heart, not from sinful self-interest. They can please God because they are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ they are accepted by God through the righteousness of Christ that is lavished upon them. They no longer relate to God as a harsh judge who cannot be approached. 
They no longer relate to God as, as in a fearful way, but they relate to God as Savior and friend and their very own Father, whom they can now approach because of Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says this. He says, For you have not come to what can be touched, to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given to them. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The author of Hebrews is looking back to that Old Testament moment, that Old Testament story when the law came down and Moses said, this is so terrifying, I tremble in fear. But he says this, you, church, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to a heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. Paul wrote this in Philippians. He said, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, the law creates slaves that are bound to never be free. But God creates children who walk in freedom with him. Indeed, this, this heavenly Jerusalem, as, as, as Paul said earlier, as he, as he quotes Isaiah speaking about the barren woman, this Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem, this heaven, it was barren for a time. She was barren just as Sarah was barren because she had borne no children. There were no children of God until Christ's resurrection. Heaven was barren. It was unoccupied, but, but Christ's death and resurrection made slaves into sons, and now heaven will be filled with born-again children of God, not slaves. And this heavenly Jerusalem will continue to produce children until the very last child of God is born and brought into glory. Paul's point is to illustrate this to the Galatians. Look, all of this is God's effort. This is all God's divine work on your behalf. It's an act of his merciful power. It's not an act of human effort. It's an act of grace. It's an act of God's undeserved favor. And Paul doesn't want to leave us without personal application to these truths. He doesn't just want to quote an allegorical story and show the Galatians how all this connects, but he wants to move us into personal application. Read verse 28 through 31 with me. It says this, Now you, brothers, oh, I love that he calls them brothers. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, who, who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free 
woman. <laughs> oh, in verse 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul begins this section with a potent reminder. He says this simply, Christian, you are not like Ishmael. Christian, you are not like Ishmael. You are not a child of the slave woman. Your citizenship is not the Jerusalem below. Your citizenship is not this earth, but is from the Jerusalem above. You, child of God, are a child of the free woman. He says, Christian, you're like Isaac. You're a child of God brought to life by divine effort and promise. And church, if we, like the Galatians, are tempted to fall back into the slavish mindset of believing that simple obedience to God's word can somehow make us right with God, we must remember that we are not children of the flesh, but we are children of the promise. We must remember that Jesus and his works and his works alone make us right with God and nothing else. I loved Dan's sermon last week when he spoke about how when we fall and we make mistakes before God, we always try to pick ourselves up in a self-effort to believe that somehow we can now re-justify ourselves. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. You're either in the family or you're not. And once you're in the family, God's not kicking you out because you fail. You know, man, that's a sermon for another day. <laughs> you know, church, we really live as all of God's people have lived. We currently live in a generation that believes that they're born good, which is something that Paul is trying to combat here. We live in a generation that believes they are born good, that they're somehow endowed with an innate goodness, and that when they stand before God, they will be accepted by God because they didn't commit the really, really bad sins, right? It's like if you go to ask someone, you know, if you died tonight and you went to heaven, why would God let you in? And so many people will say, well, because I'm a good person, <laughs> right? Because I'm a good person. And they believe that even if, if God didn't grant them access that, that surely a merciful God would give them time to put in the good effort to then balance out the scales. We live in, in a world that calls evil good and good evil, in a world that calls truth a lie. We live in a world that rejoices in what is false, but, but we know the truth, church, that a man can only be saved by divine mercy. Can only be saved by divine mercy. And that all other works are useless to stay. We stand in faith that our hope is in Christ from, from the first moment to the last moment, from total depravity to eternal glory. No one and nothing else can save but Jesus Christ. And when we stand in this faith and when we preach that message, there are going to be people who do not believe that and whose ire we will face. And this is Paul's application here. His point is this, looking back to the Old Testament, to that same story of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael, he says, the children of Sarah have always mocked, sorry, the children of Hagar have always mocked Sarah's offspring. Paul says in verse 29, but just as at that time, 
He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. So in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham holds this feast. Isaac is born and he's weaned and he's, he's become a, a young man and he's holding this feast to celebrate his son and Ishmael mocks Isaac. He laughs at him. He laughs at the celebration. He laughs at the occasion. You see, Ishmael had learned to hate Isaac just as Hagar had learned to hate Sarah. Just as children of Satan are taught to hate the children of God. And Paul is reminding us that throughout all of history, unbelievers have hated and mocked and persecuted those who stand in faith in God's promises. Those who trust in God will always be persecuted by those who trust in themselves. It's just the way it goes. And I really believe we're at a tipping point in America where the persecution of God's children will likely only continue to get worse unless, unless God brings some sort of revival. And I just want to say, Christian, stand on the unfailing promises of God. Stand on the unfailing promises of God. You are a child of promise. You are not a child of works. And as you face the world and as you stand in the truth and as persecution comes, which is what the Galatians were experiencing, it wasn't a physical threat, but it was persecution to be enticed to run from the gospel. As you, too, face these things, just remember that no persecution can destroy what God has begun in your life. What he has begun is divine effort. Remember the gospel and, and cling to Christ. Your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship is in heaven. The world is not your home. Don't cling to it. Don't barter with it. Don't compromise for it. Don't hope in it. Just follow God and pass through. Look what Paul says in verse 30. He says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Here's the reality of our heavenly inheritance. Those who trust in themselves and who do not trust in Christ will not gain a heavenly inheritance. They will not be with us in glory. They will not stand with God's believing children. And after Ishmael's mocking of Isaac, God clearly told Abraham, look, cast her out of your family. Paul is again using this allegory to show what it's going to be like for those who trust in Christ and those who do not. And so likewise, those who spend their life mocking God and mocking his children, they're not going to be counted in heaven. They're not going to be a part of the heavenly Jerusalem. So church, that means for us, even as we remind ourselves of the gospel, as we, as we, we do our very best to look to Christ and cling to him and to not fall back into slavish work, as we preach the gospel to ourselves, guess what? We have to preach the gospel to them too. We have to tell them as well. So as we pass through, make sure that you are bringing others with you. Verse 31, Paul says, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Lastly, Christian, remember God's intended purpose for your life. That God did not redeem you 
from slavish sin. He did not redeem you from the pit for you to jump back in. And this is what these Judaizers are attempting the Galatians to do. They've been ransomed from the fire. They've been ransomed from separation with God. And the Judaizers are attempting to tell them, hey, walk back into that. Walk back into that. And we don't want to do that. Christian, you've been set free because God's heart is set on your freedom. The world, the flesh, and the devil will attempt in any way that they can to bring you back into that slavery. They'll use persecution, persuasion, they'll use temptation, aversion, distraction. They'll even at times use the promise of death. You might be laughed at, you might be spit upon, you might be dismissed as irrelevant, you might be blacklisted because of the gospel. I submit to you, fight every day to remember the gospel. Do not place your hope in anything else. When you wake up, tell yourself, look, there's a law and there's grace. There's a way of works and there's a way of faith. That there are Hagars and there are Sarahs. There are Ishmaels and there are Isaacs. Tell yourself, look, there is rejection and there is inheritance. Tell yourself there's Mount Sinai and there's Mount Zion. Tell yourself, self, there's wrath and there's mercy. There's old and there's new. Tell yourself there's flesh and there's spirit. Tell yourself, look, there's bondage and there's freedom. Tell yourself there's a way to be lost and there's a way to be saved. And tell this city too. Tell this city too. Remember this gospel that frees you and hope in nothing else because this is Paul's ultimate point. There is a way of man that will perish, but there is a way of God that will last forever. Let's remember the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, you tell us that the Old Testament was written down for our instruction, that it's written down for our guidance. And Lord, this morning, help us to see that. Help us to see this Old Testament story. The Holy Spirit, you held on to it. You kept it in written form so that your people could learn from it. And Lord, help us to learn from it. Help us to remember every day that our works cannot save us. Help us to remember every single day that there is a way of man that perishes and that there is a way of God that leads to eternal life and lasts eternally. Lord, I pray today that if there's anyone among us who does not know you, if there's anyone among us who does, does not have fellowship with you, that is like those, those Jews at Mount Sinai that could not approach you, Lord, I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring them into your family. Lord, that they would be able to look at themselves and say, there's no way I can keep all of God's law. And that they would realize that that's the point, that, that you gave us the law so that we would see that we can't keep it and then we would hope in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for your death on the cross. But thank you for dying for our sins, for ransoming us and cleansing us and saving us, which is something we could never, ever do ourselves. And Lord, I pray that 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 as we preach this gospel to ourselves, that we never, 
forget this gospel, Lord, that you would help us to tell people about it. Lord, just as Paul is reminding the Galatians, Lord, help us to be ambassadors for your word, ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for the gospel. Lord, when we encounter people who who believe that they're good, who believe that their works can save them, let us, like Paul, say, I love you, but there's a better way. Lord, we are yours. Lord, as a church, move us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.